Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Thursday, March the 31st, 2022. It is currently 9.42 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Now, before I say anything else, let me just go ahead and offer a strong word of warning, all right? What you are about to hear is going to be a discussion about some things in the Bible that are very mature, very adult, and many people may not want their children to hear them. They may not want to have to deal with any conversations that may arise from this discussion But it's going to be, I want to make sure you understand, it's going to be dealing with things in the Bible, but things in the Bible that are very mature, some would say very explicit, and some things people would say, I don't want my, I don't want my children to hear that. Even though it's in the Bible, there's some things in the Bible, I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, but there's some things in the Bible that if your child is sitting there listening to discussions about it, you're going to be like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want my child to hear that. And I completely understand that. I completely understand that. And I want you to have every opportunity to do whatever you need to do right now. Either get your children busy doing something else, put on some headphones, whatever you need to do, or just uh, wait until this is available on demand and listen. As soon as the program is over, it immediately gets sent, sent out to all podcast platforms, gets sent to YouTube, it gets sent everywhere. So it immediately will show up on all the podcasting apps, and then it will be uploaded to the Church One app probably about 10 or 15 minutes after I go off the air. So it will show up everywhere on demand if you need to listen at a later time, all right? So I'm going to just give everyone a minute, do whatever you need to do, set every, get everything prepared, get ready, okay? I'm going to make sure you're good to go. Because I don't want anyone to get upset or offended saying, you didn't warn me, you didn't warn me. And, and, and before you even mentioned the subject, you, I, I, you, know, you mentioned the subject without any warning. And I'm just making sure that before I mention the subject, you have plenty of warning. All right. Are you ready? I hope you're ready. Here we go. Here's your last chance. All right. Let's begin by how this all started. I don't know what I was looking at. I don't even know where I was. I'm always obviously reading about what's going on in the world of Christianity. That's why we have a series called Eye on Christianity. That series is all about me looking at what's going on in the world of Christianity and talking about it. The good, the bad, the ugly, the controversial, the not controversial. And I, and I, and I always try to balance out doing that by obviously our Bible study exercises. I'm, I'm always trying to balance out this program. So it doesn't just become about one thing, but it's about many different aspects and things that I think are needed or helpful for you in your Christian life. But I'm always keeping an eye on Christianity. So that's reading Christian news sites, listening to Christian podcasts, uh, checking out the Edify Christian podcast app, seeing what's going on there. I mean, just I'm just always looking and looking and listening and checking and, and trying to see what's going on in the world of Christianity so that I can kind of figure out where Christianity is going and maybe some of the problems that are existing right now in the present. Well, somewhere, I don't know where I was, I came across a name of a Christian podcast. The name of the podcast is Mere Fidelity, M-E-R-E, Fidelity, F-I-D-E-L-I-T-Y, Mere Fidelity. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I've never come across this podcast. 
Never heard of it, but that's one of those things. That's why we do the Christian Podcast Spotlight uh, program or, or series where I try to turn the spotlight on different Christian podcasts because there's just so many out there. I mean, the Edify Christian Podcast app, they I think they claim, oh, what, 2 million Christian podcasts? It's some just out, absolutely crazy number. There's so much stuff out there. So I'm always listening and looking, and if I see a new Christian podcast, I will at least hit play and try to get an idea of, of what it's about. But in this particular case, I saw the name, Mere Fidelity. I'm like, okay, that's an interesting name. Like Mere Christianity from C.S. Lewis. Mere Fidelity. Okay. All right, maybe, maybe they're doing a play on word. I'm, I, just, I just looked at the title and started thinking about it. I looked at their artwork, Mere Fidelity. Okay. Um, and uh, it's kind of like these stained glass windows. I'm like, okay, maybe it comes from... An, uh, like it could be a Lutheran. I'm looking, you know, like a, it's, you know, a, a church that would probably, you know, be, uh, would be really focused on kind of a, a sacred architecture, not so much like your modern day evangelical church because they typically don't have stained glass windows. So I'm thinking maybe Anglican, maybe Lutheran, maybe Presbyterian. I'm just, I'm just sitting there. There's just all the things that were running through my mind, trying, trying to process it. And then I was just looking and all of a sudden I saw the following episode. Title. Are you ready? Here's the fight. Now, I hope, I hope you have your children aside. All right. You've been warned. All right. Here we go. So I look down and here is the title. And I quote On preaching the rape texts. And I'm like, whoa. Okay. On preaching the rape texts, the text of scripture that deal with sexual violence. I'm like, okay. First, that title caught my attention, obviously, all right? And then I read the description. Here's the description. There are several passages in the Bible that deal with scenarios of sexual violence. What is the best way to preach these texts without traumatizing or re-traumatizing the congregation? Mere Fidelity listener, they give the name. I, I, I'm not, uh, not going to give the name, all right? Um brought this question up, and the cast and crew decided to bring her directly into the conversation. Someone just asked me in our text, what platform is the podcast on? I found it, I, I know it's on Podbean. I think it's pretty much, I think it's pretty much everywhere. Let me do something uh, really quick here. Um, let me do something. That's a good question. I should have probably already had the answer before we started. Um, let me see. I'm just going to do, I'm just going to do Mere Fidelity Podcast. And I'm just going to see what shows up. It's clearly on Amazon Music. Uh, it is on Apple Podcast. It's on, let's see here, where else? Um, it's on SoundCloud. It's on Audible. Looks like, do they have a Patreon page? Uh, it looks like it's on Spotify. It looks like it's going to be on almost all podcasting platforms. I don't know if it's on I, I, let me see. I'm going to go to the Edify Christian Podcast app really quick. I don't know if it's there. Let me see. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do a search. Mere Fidelity. Uh, yes, it's on the uh, Edify Christian Podcast app. It shows up. They have a completely different artwork for it, but it is there on Preaching the Rape Text. So that's the, that's the first one that shows up, and it was released three days ago. So it's on the Edify Christian Podcast app as well, all right? So again, it is called Mere Fidelity, and 
I, I've never heard of this podcast. I've never listened to it. And here's what I did. As soon as I saw what this is about, let me read it to you again. There are several passages in the Bible that deal with scenarios of sexual violence. What is the best way to preach these texts without traumatizing or re-traumatizing the congregation? And then a, a listener brought this question up and the cast and crew decided to bring her directly into the conversation. And you can find more information at merefidelity.com. Merefidelity.com. Merefidelity is run together. Merefidelity.com. Now, as soon as I saw this, I was like, whoa, all right. This is a subject that's not typically talked about. And let's be honest, with many texts that talk about sexual violence, I started thinking, I wonder how they're, how are they typically dealt with from the pulpit? I started thinking myself, how, how are they dealt with? I know when we were in the book of Judges a long time ago in my church, and we got to a, a passage that clearly talks about some sexual violence. Um, what I did is it was a Sunday night. I think I gave everyone a warning. And then we had the younger uh, people. They went back and someone like had a class with them and removed them from the sanctuary so that we could have a, a frank discussion about it. But it's there. I mean, there's some uh, – it, it, sometimes it's interesting – as Christians, well, they'll look at something in the world, a movie or something, and look, I can't believe that, that the world makes stuff that has such messed up stuff in it. And then you think about, well, the Bible's got some stories that's got some really messed up stuff in it. I mean, some really mature themes, some serious issues. So sometimes it's weird that Christians are like, you know, that content is so wrong. And, I'm like, and you're like, and yeah, the Bible... <laughs> the the Bible, the Bible, it, it's got some serious stories in it. So I think for many, and 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 you can you can you can all tell me whether you think I'm right or wrong. First, let's just be honest. Many of these texts are not dealt with frequently. Some completely avoid them, and then at times you may want to question how are they actually dealt with. How are they dealt with? The language here for this podcast, I think it's interesting, without traumatizing or re-traumatizing the congregation. I think a lot of times, and I could be wrong, I think it probably depends on the size of the church and the location of the church. I think a lot of times when pastors preach, they may not ever, it may not cross their minds that there could be people in the congregation who have experienced some kind of sexual violence. They've, they've been a victim of it. They were traumatized by it. So then how do you deal with these stories in a way not to re-traumatize them? I mean, these are, these are some pretty messed up texts. So as soon as I saw the title, I'm like, okay, we're, I'm going to, I'm going to at least, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to grab the episode. I'm going to fast forward it to right, just skip all of their introduction and just get right to where they 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 break they start the conversation. And we're going to at least see their initial way of handling it. I don't think we're going to review the entire episode. But let's it may be a situation where this sparks a a need for me to gather all of the text and we address them one by one and some kind of maybe podcast, you know, a, 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 a podcast series on these texts of scripture. Do they need to be dealt with in a, in a very direct, open way? Is there a real need there for it? Right? There's lots of been lots of discussion in culture about sexual violence, sexual harassment, 
Uh, obviously, we could talk about all of the things that's happened within uh, the Christian world, I'm just using that in a very generic term, with child molestation and sexual abuse and sexual harassment. I mean, Christianity Today has had to deal with some issues. We'll be talking about that at some point. I mean, there's, I mean, there's been some serious issues going on. And so um, maybe when, when we have all of these issues going on, maybe we need to be willing to deal with these issues that as they are mentioned in the Bible and see how they are mentioned. Maybe some people don't want to Maybe some people don't want to deal with them because one, it's uncomfortable. And two, maybe we don't like how some of these issues are dealt with scripturally. They just seem maybe so out of touch from the modern culture. I don't know. There's probably a lot of reasons, but, but we, uh, we'll just see what develops from this. So we're going to go in this together. Okay. Blindly. I, I, I love doing it this way. It makes me nervous, right? Cause there's no safety net here. So I have no idea what's going to happen, but I like that feeling of here we are on a Thursday night. And we're all just sitting down together like, hey, I just discovered this podcast. You want to listen to it? And we just listen to it together because I don't like it to be rehearsed and planned. And I, I hate, I like this to be real and organic. I'm just bringing it to your attention. Let's listen to it together. If you're listening in chat, feel free to offer your thoughts. Um, you can email me and uh, we'll just see. I, You may not, we may get into this and completely disagree with how this podcast handles this subject. Or we may be completely convicted that they handle it in a better way than we've, we've all handled it. We have no idea what we're about to walk into, but that's what makes this exciting. So are you ready? All right. We are going to listen to a, pro, a podcast episode of Mere Fidelity called On Preaching the Rape Text. According to them, this is their description. There are several passages in the Bible that deal with scenarios of sexual violence. What is the best way? to preach these texts. Here we go. And now for something completely different, as they say. Um, we are so honored and delighted to have uh, Jen Pollock Michelle on the show. Did I get that right? You did. Oh, he shoots, he yeah. scores. Um, <laughs> Jen is a writer and speaker based in Toronto, Canada. She's the author of a number of books, including a habit called Faith, Teach Us to Want, Surprised by Paradox. She's got a weekly Substack newsletter that you can uh, subscribe to at her website, which is jenpollockmichelle.com. Uh, and we, this is, this is a, I think a first maybe for Mere Fidelity, which I'm, I'm actually really excited about. We, Jen sent in a question. And we were like, that's a great question and we should talk about it. But the question is so good and so important that probably we should just talk about it with Jen. So this is the, this is the rare list, maybe listener, maybe just like one off person. I'm not going to like imply that you're a listener, but you did send us the question. And so we're, we're really excited to have you on the show to talk with us. <laughs> I am a listener and it's a first for me too. I've never actually sent... Um, a request to any podcast to cover a particular topic. And I went back to actually read my email, or I guess when I got a response, and I thought, what got into me that day? <laughs> you know, what? So it's it's a first for me, too. Do you, do you feel a little bit like, um, every time I record this show, I think about Desi Arnaz, 
you know, saying to, to Lucy, here's another fine really? mess you've got. Oh, no, that's not that's not Lucy Wall. Is that that's um, that's not that's uh, oh, my gosh. That's Laurel and Hardy. It's Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy. I'm totally mixing up my early 20th century comedy. Here's another fine mess you've gotten me into. Um, so here. I have to laugh because sometimes the mess I the messes I find myself in are almost always because some listener either said, here's a podcast to listen to. And then by the time we're done, I'm like, what in the world was that? Or, hey, what about this subject? Or, hey, what about this subject? And then you're like, oh, that's a good idea. And then you do the episode and then then there's controversy or fallout. And then you're like, why? Why did I read my email? Why did I listen to that? And you almost want to email the person back and go, Thank you so very much for all. No, no. I think every podcaster loves to get those emails where someone is invested enough in your program and they want you to cover something. Maybe because they're interested. Maybe they have a need. Maybe maybe they want to talk about the. Uh, they need someone to talk about the subject because no one, no one they listen to or no one around them. Maybe in their church they won't talk about it. So. I think every podcaster loves getting those emails, but sometimes it is funny because you're like, oh, that's a great idea. And then when you're done, well, the listeners already moved on. They're already, they're probably already listening to another podcast and you're like, oh no, I've just ticked off a hundred people. What just happened? So it is, it is, right. <laughs> it is, it is funny. Yes. There are, there are, there are certain listeners who will, uh, like suggest things that turn out to be like what what is that and someone in the chat is mentioning one of those listeners but we we won't we won't call that person out all right here we go so are we, let's get back so i just think that's funny but let's we're we're, we're here to get to how they're going to handle this very, very controversial subject they're having a little bit of fun because it's i'm assuming it's about to get pretty serious here we go here's here's the mess so lay this out for us because i i think this is a really it's a great question there's a lot here to talk about. Um, important subject. It's a really important mm-hmm. subject. This is as, probably as lighthearted as we'll be. It's only downhill from here. Um, yeah. So lay out the question for us. Yeah. I mean, my question very simply was, why don't people preach the rape texts? Um or at least in my experience, I've grown up in Bible believing churches my entire life, like, you know, kind of a cradle Southern Baptist. I'm a PCA um, church member now, went to Wheaton College. Um, so it's not as if I don't have, you know, experience, I guess, in a church pew. I can't think of a time when I've ever heard um, explicated, exposited passages like Judges 19 some of the past, you know, the rape of Tamar um, in Second Samuel, um, even, you know, some of the text in Genesis. I was thinking about it actually today when I was going back through some of the passages and I thought, gosh, of all of the, t- all of the times I've heard Joseph's story with Potiphar's wife, I have very, um, I don't remember hearing Sarai and Abram and Abimelech Um And, you know, I have my own suspicions as to why that is. But I think particularly for me, I thought these texts are really important for the conversation that we're having around sexual abuse, um, especially within the church, um, and just sexual violence against women. And I think also in particular, the conversation around abortion, um, as, as we think about violence against women, which is 
frequently something that's cited by pro-abortion activists as a reason for continuing to legalize abortion. Um, And as a Christian who is convinced that scripture is God-breathed and all of scripture is beneficial for the church, um, I want to hear these texts preached. And I think as a woman, I... I actually have to be honest and say that I haven't noticed the omission until more recently. And I don't know if my experience is particular to me, but my, I did reach out to a pastor friend and said, have you ever preached a rape text? And so he went back through his notes and said, I taught on judges nine in um, basically like a Sunday school, like an adult discipleship setting, but never from the pulpit. Um, And so I just thought it'd be an interesting conversation for you guys to have. Certainly never one that I thought I'd get roped into. (laughs) Okay. So in her experience, no one preaches on these texts. Now, I'm just going to throw out some of my thoughts here right right from the start. One, look, if you've been a pastor for five minutes, you know that almost anything you do, it and now now it depends on the. It, we'll put it this way. I'll state it this way. Based on stories I've heard from many pastors, that no matter what you do, it almost it, no matter what you preach, someone's going to get bothered. Someone's going to get upset. But when you come to the pulpit and and it's you know the congregation is there, and you're going to go in onto a text dealing with rape or some kind of horrible sexual situation, you can almost guarantee someone's going to get offended or someone's going to get bothered. Someone's going to get upset and say, that's not appropriate. Now, it's weird to say that's not appropriate when it's in the Bible, but I can understand because you have to take into consideration the audience. If you're there in the congregation, like a typical Sunday morning or a Sunday night, you, I mean, unless your church just basically is one of those that tries to remove every child and every teenager from the sanctuary. You're you, unless you're doing that, there's going to be a lot of different age groups present, and it's going. And whenever you're dealing with these situations, rape, incest, all of the different things that happen in the Bible, well, that's going to leave the parent getting in the car, right? And then all of a sudden, the kids who never talk about the sermon may start asking some really difficult questions. And a lot of parents don't want to deal with that. They don't think they don't they don't like it. And I understand they don't want it, they don't want them pushed into that by a sermon. But at the same time, it's in the Bible, so I can understand why preachers are like, "Well, what do I do? What do I do? How do how do I handle this?" So I think, and sometimes they preach around it. They may kind of mention it. You try to be as careful as you can with the language, but we don't really have those deep conversations in regards to it. I, I think that's very important. So I, I think that's number one. It's just no matter what you do, you're going to make someone mad. But if you do this, it's almost in like throwing a bomb in the middle of, of the congregation. Who knows how it's going to play out? So then you have to try to figure out the logistics of it. All right. We need to remove all of the young people. Well, what age groups need to go? What age groups need to go? Right. I would think teenagers need to be there. Some parents may get upset about that. I would think teenagers need to, to, to hear these texts, but others would disagree with me. So right there, you already see, see the controversy you're going to get yourself into no matter what you do. I think another reason that I think in some reason the texts are dealt with, but I don't know if they're dealt with. 
I don't know if they're dealt with in a way that says, look, let's talk about sexual violence against women. Let's talk about sexual harassment. Let's talk, let's talk about some major sexual issues. And I think a lot of times these issues are not brought up because, well, the preaching is done by men, obviously. And I believe that that's the way it should be. Obviously, I believe the Bible calls for men to be pastors, but I think, uh, the men may not have the perspective well, I mean, I would argue most men in the pulpit have probably never been, I would probably say the majority have obviously never been a victim of a sexual crime. I would say the majority have not been. The women sitting in the pew may have. So it's like, how do you get that? How do you, how do you approach these texts? Maybe taking into consideration a perspective that maybe many men are not that equipped to deal with. For a lack of better, uh, a lack for a lack of better terminology, I think these are some serious issues. One, it's controversial, and two, even if the passages are preached, I don't know if they're going to be dealt with. To deal with maybe some of the issues that need to be dealt with, right? I mean, clearly there's been sexual abuse in the church. There's been sexual harassment. There's been a lot. I mean, the church. Its history is filled with all kinds of horrible things that happen sexually, right? But but the church always seems to be scared to death of talking about the subject, right? It's like, well, you know, okay, we talk, we we always say about sex, sex or sexual sin is it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. It's like there's never really a chance to have any kind of meaningful conversation about the subject because someone's going to be offended or someone's going to get upset, right? or, or they think, well, if you're talking about it, well, then then immediately you'll be accused. Accused of you, you, you know, you're, you're, you're a sexual pervert, and all you think about is sex. Because why would you be talking about that from the pulpit, even though the Bible talks about the subject quite a bit? So it, it, it just, or some people think you're just trying to be sensational to just build an audience. Because if you talk about that, that will attract an audience. It's just your motives get called into question. Everything gets called into question. There, there's just so many issues with it. But let's see what why they think possibly. It's not dealt with. Let's see if they, they come up with I, I could go through a, a list of things, but I just thought I would throw a couple of thoughts out. Here we here, let's see what they have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't I, I, I am interested to hear your suspicions. You mentioned that you have suspicions as to why mm-hmm. these get overlooked. So I'd be interested to hear that. I mean, my 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 first before Alistair comes in and tells us all about the significance of the rape tax, um, my I think one thing that intrigues me about this subject is that at least my impression is, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. My impression is that actually the framing them as quote rape tax is fairly recent Mm. as a category, right? That actually historically there are ways of reading them that do not frame them as rapes, or if they frame them as rapes, they end up sort of qualifying or mitigating the badness in various directions. So mm-hmm. um, I just, one reason why I was interested in this topic was because just um, this last Sunday as some of my fun reading, I was reading a, a book called Dinah's Lament, which is a, um, a sort of survey of how various texts get read throughout the tradition. And uh, the story of Dinah, you know, she she uh, goes out to see other women, the story goes, and she's raped. And then uh, her rapist 
it's very confusing as to what happens, but basically like says some nice things. Uh, she maybe feels sad and then um, they, they're basically married. Lots of other things happen after that. But the, the way that gets preached throughout the tradition is um, that it's, it's a sort of chastening of women's agency, right? That, that really actually the problem was she travels by herself to go see the other women. She's unaccompanied. And that's, that's sort of the problem. And so the, a big thrust of the traditions moralizing about that particular episode is you got to watch over your women to make sure they don't go out unaccompanied because look at what's going to happen if they do, which is a very different way. And actually, one of the things that I really thought was valuable about this, this particular chapter is actually Luther comes out like better than almost everyone um, because Luther like frames this as uh, like really a rape. And, you know, the author of this book speculates that Luther preaches this while having daughters. And so has, has some like personal investment in it that other exegetes and interpreters don't necessarily, but it does, it does raise, I think there are potential historical considerations as to how these texts get framed and, and, the fact that we are in our own time willing to name things as rape and that has a certain sort of power as a category that potentially it didn't previously. Okay, that's interesting. Some text of scripture, do we find a way to not want to frame them as rape texts? We, we want to kind of, we kind of want to remove that as a category and we look at the story and what we take from the story or how we moral or, or the moral we take from the story really negates the focus on the rape really and puts it on something else. Is, 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 is that a possibility? Now, I will say there are oh, – I'm going to give you at least – I'll give you one text of scripture that I don't think ever gets framed as a rape text. But I think maybe we could – possibly look because again i think sometimes the way we looked at them in the past and and this, this is sad now now we, we got to think about this is it possible because of the way uh the sexual harassment sexual assault sexual abuse has been to so talked about within popular culture that it's forced the church to relook at certain texts in the bible is it because many in the world looked at some of these texts in the Bible and like, what in the world is that? And it forced the church to go, huh, we've not looked at it that way. Is that possible? Now, if that's the case, that would be sad that it required the world to challenge our hermeneutic. That would be really bad. But let me just give you one because, and I know this is going to be controversial, but let's just, let's just, let's just be honest here. Okay. I don't know if they're going to mention this one because they're going to all the, the blatant ones, but what about the ones where, well, was that rape? Let me give you an example. Let's see if you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, all right? Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. 
And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar and made the Egyptian after and uh, her, let me read this again. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram, had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan and gave her to her husband and Abram to be his wife. Now, we know, obviously, there's a physical relationship and, and a son is produced. Does Hagar have any say-so in this? Any? Any any agency? Any any say so, any any power at all, any consent? Can she even give consent? It's like Sarah's like, here, here she is. Now she she's your wife, and now you have relations. Does does Hagar have any say so in it? Now, if she has no say so and she gives no consent, well then does that not meet the criteria of rape? Do we call that rape? A lot of people are like, absolutely not, absolutely not. No, 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 no. And I understand we're arguing from some, a a silence, but it just seems really, put it this way. It makes me uneasy the way it happens. Sarah comes up, Sarah comes up with the idea. Here she is, go. It's like, like, there's no like, well, I talked to Hagar about this and she thinks this this would be a great idea. It's like, no, Sarah just makes the decision. And you can say, well, it was a different time. You can say it's a different time all day long. But when someone's body is being taken and used without their consent, I think it's troubling and bothersome. And I think everyone should be able to admit that. Now, now the point is, if you even raise that as a possibility, some people will get very upset and mad. Like, how dare you? You're just reading things into it. Now, I'm I think it's, I think it's a reasonable question. Right? I think, I think that, that, that's one text right there. I think that we can say, hmm, what's, what's going on here? Because Hagar doesn't appear to be given any, any, any consideration in the story. Now, others will say, absolutely not. She clearly went, uh, put it this way. We're arguing from silence. So it's very hard to prove either way, but I think it's at least somewhat concerning. And yeah, that, that I think, I think we have to accept that reality. That, so I'm just saying that there, there's some texts that I think we, we try to frame them in a way that we almost forget the rape and we look at some other moral from the story and here sometimes it may be the possibility that rape is happening and we just, it, we got to write, why, or just kind of forget it and move on. We just kind of overlook it and then focus on, well, he didn't have, they didn't trust in God. They didn't have faith, right? This is, this is a lack of trust in God, a lack of faith. It's just a little stumbling block in, and and Abram's spiritual journey. Like we, we, we kind of minimize the sin a little bit. We may say, oh, it's horrible because he didn't show faith, but we don't, Maybe there's something far worse going on here. Is that is that a possibility? At least I want to at least present that as something to consider. Let, let's see what they where where else they go with this. That's that's just that's just one way of complicating things. Yeah, I think that's helpful. I actually went to the story of Dinah and I thought and I saw this the heading in my Bible that said the defiling of Dinah. 
And so I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Um, and that is actually the word I think that's essentially used. I mean, I'm not sitting here with it open in front of me. Um, and so I was like, I was very curious to see what words were actually being used, knowing, of course, that, you know, I unfortunately don't know Hebrew, but I t went reliably to Robert Alter's translation and commentary. And, um, you know, we could go to a passage like um, Genesis 19, I think, right, with um, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. The word there is like, go, please just rape my daughters instead of um, raping um, this guest who has come to stay with me. I think it was Genesis 19. It may have been the yeah. judges one. Is that it? Am I right on that? One is judges 19. Oh, the it, other is Genesis 19. Um, okay. Both of them involve a similar, very similar situation. It's the same, okay. same formula kind of. And I wasn't sure. I think the word though is rape, not, you know, defile for example, because I don't think the word rape, to your point, Matthew, is the word that's actually used in the story of Dinah. I think one of the challenges we have when reading and preaching these sorts of stories is, first of all, trying to understand how they fit into the, the larger narrative. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why many people struggle to preach these, um, connecting them with the larger stories that surround them. It's very easy, for instance, to drop out a narrative like Genesis 34 and the story of Dinah or the story of Tamar in chapter 38, they don't really fit in with the surroundings. You don't hear people preaching, for instance, through Genesis 36 and many other chapters that seem to be standalone stories. And so you almost have to learn that these are part of the larger fabric in order to understand their significance. I think the same thing with the story at the end of Judges. Um, Within the past few years, I've been going through the lectionary, speaking every single day, doing a reflection on a chapter. And one of the things that they do is they miss out certain mm. sections that um, parts of Leviticus, Numbers, things like that. They miss out the final five chapters of Judges, which I've just been working to, to, work, to finish that part. But it seems to me that that is to destroy something of the structure of the book as a whole. The final chapters really are an imp important part of the story. And in some ways, it's almost stepping back from these stories and realizing we, we can easily read them as rape stories, but they are stories that are part of the larger fabric of the narrative too. And reading the stories of these rapes as part of the larger fabric, I think helps us to see how they're connected with lots of other issues that are entangled with them. So for instance... Um, in so many of these stories, the woman almost seems to be incidental. Um, so in the case of both Sodom and Gibeah, it's chiefly the man who is initially under threat and the woman is thrown under the bus in order to protect him. You have other situations where the situation, for instance, with Dinah is very much about family relationships, about brothers wanting to take vengeance against others, about the political machinations of Hamor and his son, and the relationship between the loved and the unloved side of the family. And those sorts of relationships provide a context within which this extreme act of violence takes place and is... Now, I think, I think this is an important po point to be made here. Because especially in the, in the secular world, they look at some of these texts about how the women are almost viewed as an afterthought. They're just like, they're secondary to the story, right? And, and, and the women 
are almost treated as not that important or relevant and 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 that bothers us and it should bother us in some ways and some people it says well see this this raises all kinds of questions about the about god and about the godliness of these people let me i think this is very important because we i think we, we i think sometimes people get really bothered and and it and and skeptics raise all kinds of questions at this point and i think there's something we just have to deal with and we got to be honest when we read the bible right we're reading real stories of real people and it's been true of god's people right it's been true of god's people from the immediately after the fall to right here, March the 31st, 2022. This has always been true of God's people. I don't care what country they live in. I don't care what time they live in. It is always true. God's people is constantly influenced by the culture in which they live. They adopt certain ideas that are from the culture, certain principles and certain philosophies that are from the culture. We have seen it over and over and over again. So if you're in a culture where the women is treated almost like a piece of property, you cannot be surprised or shocked that those philosophies and ideals will also show up within God's people. When we had human beings being purchased and sold as property, slavery, guess what? There were Christians who not only supported the practice, engaged in the practice, defended the practice, because God's people is always constantly influenced by the world in which they live. I know we like to believe that as Christians, we're not like the world, we're different than the world, we're transformed from the world. Yes, we should be but over and over and over in your life, in my life, in your church, in any other church, we are constantly influenced by the culture which we find ourselves. We have to be willing to acknowledge that influence and then try to constantly purge it out. So why am I shocked when I go back to Genesis and I see some practice? I mean, we have polygamy all over the place in the Old Testament. All over, I mean, Solomon. I mean, parents have no problem. To, uh, hey, kids, memorize some proverbs tonight. Yeah, you're you're reading a book written by a man who was a serial adulterer, a serial polygamist, and ultimately an idolater is how it all ends up. But but we sometimes we just overlook all of that, or we're like, well, you know, nobody. I mean, I mean it's just weird how sometimes we overlook some of the sins of the people in the Bible. The larger narrative is. The people of God lived within the world, and the world typically influenced the people of God more than the people of God were influencing the world. We see that in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. You go through the entire Bible, you see it over and over and over, and then you turn to the New Testament, and what I'll just we could just jump to the to the letter to Corinth. Here was a church located in the city. The city was influencing the church more than the church was influencing the city. We just live in this really weird world of evangelical Christianity that brainwashes us into thinking that we're so different than the world. No, in theory we are, but in practice, we are constantly bombarded and influenced by it. So if the culture adopts a certain way of thinking, lo and behold, it's going to show up in the church. It's going to show up in the lives of God's people, even those people who are heroes of the faith. I mean, Abram is their slave. First, they have a slave, and then he just he has physical relations with her. 
well, she's almost viewed as an afterthought. In fact, we just kind of forget Hagar. Well, you know, Hagar, this just happens to Hagar. Well, Abraham, but the good thing about Abraham is he learned, we almost like, man, he kind of messed up here. It showed that they didn't have any faith, but lo and behold, they got their faith right. They got their faith right. And they believed in God. And we just forget about Hagar. Hagar's just discarded. We're just like, well, she showed up too bad about Hagar, but look at Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had father Abraham. And I'm one of them. Okay. Well, look at, look at Abraham. He's in, he's in Hebrews 11, but Hagar's just forgotten about. Well, but that's very, I think that's very, Lot offering up his daughters. I mean, that's horrific and horrible. Well, how could that happen? Because all of the people in the Bible were being influenced by the culture in which they found themselves. That is what these stories show over and over again. I don't know why it's, it's this moralism and evangelicalism who tries to pretend that we're not influenced by it, that we're different, we're godly. Well, I'm telling you, even in our most godly moments, we're being influenced by the culture. I'm telling you, it, it's just, if, if you don't see that from these texts, then I think you're missing the larger narrative. Countenanced. Um, but until you actually see the bigger picture, you don't really see the full force of what's happening to Dinah and to the Levites' concubine or to the daughters of, of Lot. And the stories have all sorts of complications as well. They're not tidy stories. The people who are at the heart of them are not just presented to us as straightforward victims, and that's all that they are. Um, for instance, Lot's daughters end up essentially raping him um, at the end of the story. And in the story of the Levite's concubine, it begins with her unfaithfulness. And so these are complicated, messy stories that require, if you're going to be preaching them, a lot of delicacy to mm-hmm. actually handle that in front of a a congregation that might include children. And so part of it is just our approach to the biblical text more generally, to recognize that these texts do not stand by themselves. They're part of a larger fabric. And if you want to understand, for instance, what happens to Tamar in um, 2 Samuel chapter 13, you will not fully understand the force of that until you've read the surrounding context. And when you do, it just hits you like a ton of bricks what this means. Mm. That's, I mean, Alistair, that's helpful. I wonder if you could say something more about how you think those various layers change our perception of the right, of the wrongness of rape. So it seems like partially what, what, what the significance of rape text as a category is. Right, which which frames our impression of these texts in a particular way, is that it names something that seems just so violent and bad just as such that it actually overwhelms our imagination such that the other layers become in one sense superfluous. Now I actually actually don't know enough here, but it there's something that's that's pedagogically pastorally valuable about that because it's it names real violence that really is horrific. But there's potentially also a downside to that sort of framing, in part because the types of violence that get enacted are often, though not always, situated within these multi-layered contexts where 
you have, you know, existing relationships and the violence happens within the context of this relationship rather than, you know, a, a context where um, uh, it's a sort of like, yeah, it's a contextless rape, as it were, right? Where the person is assaulted by a total stranger and has to just deal with it. Like, it may be the case that there's something really pastoral. So I, I just wonder, as you're thinking about, like, this category and this context, how does it help or affect our imaginations to locate rapes within that sort of broader context? Well, I think one of the first things I think can be helpful is maybe to not focus just upon the term rape. There are a lot of issues of sexual violence and abuse that we maybe won't classify under the category of rape, but clearly are situations where someone is being sexually abused. Think of Hagar, for instance. Mm -hmm. Do we think of that as a rape? Well, people would debate. I'm not sure it's the first term that would come to people's minds, but clearly there's a situation of sexual abuse there. Now, as we're reading through the story, the story of Hagar does not stand by itself. It's within a pattern. So you begin in chapter 15 with animals being gathered together. Um, Abraham is placed into a deep sleep. He is told that his descendants will be strangers in a land that is not their own, and they will be afflicted there. Then at the beginning of the next chapter, the moment he wakes up, as it were, you're told that Sarai is barren. She has no children. And then she takes her handmaid and gives her to her husband. And as we read through that story, what we're seeing is essentially the pattern of Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And that leads to the opening up of eyes. It leads to, um, there's lots of callbacks just in the language. He listened to the voice of his wife. She took and she gave to her husband. And even the fact that Hagar's name would seem to evoke the stranger, um, and she's described as being afflicted, it's... What Abraham was told would happen to his descendants is happening in his own house beneath his nose, and he's not realising it. And it's a sort of fall event. And then we think that that story has just gone to one side and we can forget about it. Hagar ends up leaving. She's cast out when um, there's the threat of Ishmael to uh, Isaac, feels that he might um, take his spot as the true heir. But then many chapters later in the story of a great-grandson of, of Abraham, this story raises its head again. There's a son who was cast off and his mother. And in chapter 37, Joseph is taken down by the Ishmaelites into Egypt, the same place that Ishmael went. And then two chapters later, we see him as the Hebrew servant in the house of an Egyptian master, and his mistress is seeking to um, misuse him sexually. For her advantage. And then she is cast, he is cast out and described as laughing at us. She blames her husband. Now, that's playing the story of Genesis 16 out again, but in a reversal of roles. And so what we're seeing is the same event from a different perspective. Now, people will tell the story of Genesis chapter 30, 39 and Joseph withstanding temptation. And that's the way that they frame it, missing the background of chapter 16 and the way that the two stories help us to read each other to recognise what is truly happening to Hagar in Abraham's house when we see it happening to Abraham's descendant in the house of an Egyptian. So that's one way, I think, that recognising the broader structure of these stories can help and the layers of them 
can help us to read them better as joined up narratives. Again, in, for instance, chapters 18 and 19, you have the story of Abraham and the visitation of the three men. And the story goes through the, he gives this extravagant greeting. He runs out to them, bows his face to the ground, invites them in for a meal. The meal is described. And then his wife is standing in the doorway and she's promised this to be made fruitful and to have a son. And then the next chapter, we have another story that is parallel to it, like two panels. The angels arrive. It's not no longer the heat of the day. It's the evening has come. And then there's a meal that's being sell- They're invited extravagantly with the same sort of greeting by Lot. They're invited in for a meal. The meal is described. And now, instead of a promise of life at the doorway, there's a threat of death at the doorway. And Abraham is gathering people together, but Lot is casting off his family. And the story ends with the wife of Lot being turned barren as a pillar of salt. And Lot, as Abraham, Abraham, um, the question is, how is he going to have offspring? And he's promised offspring. And at the end of chapter 19, there's a twisted alternative to that with Lot and his daughters. And that story helps us to understand the consequences of the characters of Sodom and the way that um, Lot behaved towards his daughters as it comes back upon his own head. And so these larger fabrics, I think, help us to understand the ramifications of sexual sin, how it's bound up with a larger structure of violence. I mean, so many of these stories about violence between men in which women are just collateral damage. And unless we can see the larger fabric, we won't see the causes, we won't see the ramifications, how it plays out many years down the line. These sins have deep consequences. Now, that's beautiful the way he's connecting the narratives and putting them together and showing how the narrative is kind of repeated in a different way or it's reverse. All brilliant, all great. The only thing is he's not really telling, okay, if you see the broader narrative, it does what? I see the broader narrative. Okay. He, he still, he keeps talking about until we see the narrative, then we can't really understand these quote unquote rape texts, but he doesn't really tell us how the larger narrative, what, how does it change it? It may help protect us from ignoring the rape and moralizing it. So we find a different, you know, a moral story somewhere else. But he, it's, it's brilliant that he's putting these together. To me, I think these stories are telling us this, that over and over and over, that not only do we see the, re, the, the reality of depravity, but we see the influence of the culture. That when we go read it, because what everyone always says, well, women are treated this way because that's the way it was in the culture. Right. Even God's people were influenced by the culture. We see sexual sin, not only from those outside of God's people, but even within God's people over and over and over. That's what we see. These stories demonstrate that. And, and this is very important when dealing with these, these texts. In many cases, they just report the history of what happened. They're not there giving a moral judgment about what happened. In other words, I don't always say this is good or this is bad. It's just presented, here is what happened. And then we can gather from other texts of scripture how we judge that behavior or condemn said behavior. But here's what I, I would challenge everyone to do, all right? Because there's no way we can finish this. I would first challenge you to go look up the podcast, Mere Fidelity. Listen to the rest of this. We are at the 22 minute, 22 minutes and 40 second mark. There's about 
27 minutes left. Go listen to the last 27 minutes. Please let me know what you think or what you hear or, or just any perspectives you have. But I think this is what we should do. If anybody wants to start working on this, let's gather a chart of all the, we'll call them rape text or text dealing with possible sexual violence. Now, I'm glad they did mention Hagar, right? And let's make it very clear, even though the narrative may be repeated, ultimately Hagar is just kind of cast aside, which is, again, to me, horrific, but it it shows the influence of the culture at the time. But I, I think we should gather and make it like a list of all the text. And then maybe we'll just start doing like some teaching on each one, some teaching on each one, no matter how ugly it is. And then, and then just see, see, like there, I, of course they don't have time in one episode to do this, but I think each text deserves serious consideration because nobody else probably will talk about them. So maybe we will start, I don't know what we'll call it, biblical text on sexual violence. Maybe we'll call something along that. Uh, sexual violence in the Bible, something along that. And we'll do, we'll go, through, we'll try to just dedicate one program to each passage. It may, may maybe one passage, we'll get three, four, five, uh, you know, parts if need be. But I think that's what we need to do because because I think it's true that people overlook them so we need to gather all the text that we can think of. So if you want to start gathering the text, start in Genesis and just start thinking of anyone you can think about. And here's something that's very important, has to be considered. Um, when we get into, we'll call it the law of Moses, right? You get into Deuteronomy, Numbers, there's some laws handed down that in many cases address sexual violence rape. There's some texts there that are extremely questionable and get can really bother some people. We need to find those passages as well. So we'll start gathering them and, and then we'll just start working through them. Good, bad, and ugly. I mean, I'm not saying there's going to be easy answers. There's some passages there you're just like, what in the world? Like, again, I think the Hagar passage, I know we focus on, man, Abraham didn't have enough faith. Man, Ah, oh, bad Abraham. And, and then we, we, I mean, we, we just overlook the fact that, you know, he's, he's sleeping with another woman. We kind of like, yeah, that's, that's okay. Father Abraham, because, because look, look what he, he, he turned out and he offered up Isaac. He was going to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. See, so we could just overlook. It's, it's amazing how we can overlook that. But if someone was to do something similar today, we wouldn't overlook it. But, um, yeah, there, there's something going on there. And then, of course, night, chapter 19, I mean, Lot just saying, here's my daughters. How How is that even humanly possible? And then the daughters turn around and basically rape their father, which I think interesting. The Bible seems to show that sexual violence, uh, taking rape, having relations with someone without their consent, and obviously if someone is drunk, they cannot give their consent, that the Bible seems to, in a sense, was way ahead of its time. It shows that that men can be guilty of it. We'll call them heterosexual men can be guilty of it. Homosexuals can be guilty of it. Women can be guilty of it. That sexual sexual violence and sexual uh, and rape can be carried out by anyone, no matter their sexual preference or I, their sexual identity, that it can be carried out by anyone demonstrating the reality of 
depravity. I think that's, I think that's one of the fascinating things here, right? We have, we have Potiphar, Potiphar's wife trying to get Joseph to have uh, relations. Uh, I mean, she's almost trying to, you know, she won't let, let him alone. She, that's like sexual harassment. We have a woman committing sexual harassment in Genesis. We have daughters getting their father drunk and basically raping him. That's in Genesis. We have Abram using his power as basically slave owner, engaging in physical relations. We have these men basically surrounding a house wanting to, well, rape the, the men in the house. This is clearly... A homosexuality. It just, it just seems that all of these sexual, this problem shows up in all kinds of different people. I think that's an interesting part that sometimes is overlooked. All right. So that's something I think we will work on. All right. I think this is just going to, we'll just start something because I think we need to look at these and have honest discussions about them, no matter how uncomfortable they make us. Because I think in many cases, the church hasn't been a voice really has, has the church been a strong moral voice about sexual harassment and sexual rape and mo- mo- child molestation? Have we been a strong voice about it? Or have those who, who have been victim of sexual violence found comfort in the church? I don't know. I don't know. But I think it's something that we can discuss. So we will, we will, we will, we'll put a bookmark here, and we're definitely going to return to this. And again, if you want to be of any assistance, just collect every passage you can think of. Just start in Genesis, everyone you can think of, right? Just give me the reference, and then I'll start trying to put them together because you may find some that I don't think of, and we'll put it together, and then we'll just start working through it step by step. And we'll try to look at each passage focusing on the the sexual violence and uh, issues related to the text instead of trying to look for a different moral story. All right. I can't wait to see what you think. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, right? That was a mere fidelity. Go listen to it. Listen to the rest of their their, their episode and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what else they have to say about this very important subject. And uh, if you if you hear anything else that they have to say, let me know what you think, because uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just we'll, we're definitely going to be talking about this again in the future. I just I just think we absolutely have to. All right, I'll stop right there. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great evening. God bless.